Oswald Chambers once said, Christianity is not devotion to work or to a cause or a doctrine, but devotion to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was asked of all the commandments that God gave us, which one is the greatest? Jesus, which one is the most important? Which one should we focus on more than all the others? In other words, what is the most important thing that a person can spend their life doing? His answer was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, Matthew 22, 37 and 38. What Jesus was describing there is nothing less than radical devotion to God. It's living a life that is undistracted by other things, even other priorities. Listen, even other good things. Not allowing anything else in our lives to come before him. It is a life that is chiefly focused on Christ above everything else. That means giving more attention to him than we give to anyone or anything else, including ourselves. That means giving more of our resources to him than we give to anyone or anything else, including ourselves. That means finding more fulfillment, more satisfaction in him than we do in anyone or anything else, including ourselves, okay? Radical devotion is loving Christ with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. And I, I think um, intellectually, I think at least we get that because, of course, we read about it in the Bible and we talk about it in church. But honestly, just think about for a moment, how many Christians do you know personally who you would say with confidence actually live their lives with a radical devotion to Christ? And when you do start naming those people in your mind that you know who live that way, would you say they represent the vast majority of professing believers that you're acquainted with? Or are they the exception to the rule? Because I'll just tell you, in our culture, it has historically been and still is very easy to profess that you're a Christian with little to no actual devotion to Jesus Christ, let alone a radical devotion to him, as opposed to other cultures where you can be killed for nothing more than simply professing faith in Christ in public. And so as a result, there is a multitude of people in our society are talking about our Christian society who adhere to a Christian faith to one degree or another, but treat the actual level of devotion to which they follow Christ as if that's some kind of personal choice we get to make. Like it's okay to choose how devoted we're actually going to be when it comes to following Jesus. The problem with that is Jesus didn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first suggestion. No, he said, this is the great and first commandment. So God has commanded each one of us to be radically devoted to him. In fact, it's not only a command by God, but it's the first and greatest command of them all. Yet I honestly believe that being radically devoted to Christ is, uh, is the number one priority today for a lot of people who profess to be followers of Christ. I don't think so. Not in our culture. Not in our church culture. Certainly it is for some. But by the way... Uh, if all of this is convicting to you, if that's a convicting statement to you, just know it's convicting to me as well. Because the, the truth is, it is so easy in this country, which, by the way, I'm profoundly grateful for. I'm grateful for the freedom and prosperity that we have here. 
But it is staggeringly easy in our society today to live an entire lifetime believing that we can serve material prosperity and serve personal gratification and serve ego and serve pride and serve self-interests and still serve God. Even though Jesus said no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6, 24. We, we, listen, we really, we really have to stop treating the Christian faith as if it is some kind of buffet line that we can pick and choose the parts we like and walk right past the parts we don't, all the while believing that doing so has no effect on our own lives or the lives of others. Because I'll tell you, nothing will positively affect the lives of those around you more than when you decide to radically devote your life to Christ, which means not only receiving Christ, but receiving all that comes along with that. And of course, the opposite is true as well. That's one of the reasons he commands us to be radically devoted to him. Because look, we need all that he has for us if we're going to be all that we can be for him and for other people which means we cannot be selective when it comes to our devotion to him. Look, look, you're, you're either all in or you're not in at all. So, so when we choose to follow Christ, we choose everything that comes along with that while at the same time making the hard decisions every day to ruthlessly reject every single thing in our lives that draws our focus and affection away from Christ. And by the way, that's a radical way to live your life, to be sure, it's also the reason that few people choose to live that way. But that's what radical devotion looks like. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it goes against everything that our flesh longs for. But it's the only way to live the kind of life that you're truly capable of living. And it is the only way to receive everything from God that he wants to give you. And by the way, it's the only way to truly please him by obeying that first and greatest commandment. And as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, this was a lesson that God's people had to learn, unfortunately, the hard way in the early stages of their conquest of Canaan. So we're going to pick the story up right where we left off last week. This is right after the Israelites conquered the city of Jericho by the supernatural working of God on their behalf. Uh, it was a stunning victory and one that no doubt gave the people of God great confidence that he was on their side and intended on prospering them as they obediently trusted his guidance into the promised land. So let's pick the story up at chapter 7. We'll begin by reading verse 1. Joshua 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Akan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So in order to fully appreciate the gravity of what has happened here, we have to revisit the previous chapter where God's instructions are explicit to the people of Israel in verses 17 and 18 that when they take Jericho by storm, everything and everyone in the city are to be devoted to destruction, save Rahab and her family and the silver, gold, bronze, and iron, which are to be put into the treasury of the Lord. So Joshua clearly instructs the people, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... 
Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So they're not permitted to take any of the spoils of war, not one single item for themselves personally, which means other than one family, everything was to be destroyed or devoted to destruction, as Joshua puts it in verse 18. In uh, modern military terms, this is eliminating the enemy with extreme prejudice. In Joshua's day, it was called the Karim principle, which was, by the way, very familiar to the Hebrew people. Okay, when Joshua talks about the devoted things, he's using the ancient Hebrew word karam, which we don't really have a good equivalent for in our modern English language. But basically, when used as a noun, it referred to something that was set apart as sacred property. And when used in its verb form, which it is in chapter 6, verse 18, it describes a, a special action of setting something apart permanently as the property of God, listen, either for service or for destruction. So when entire cities or entire populations were placed under carom, that usually involved the complete annihilation of that city and its people, which wasn't unique, by the way, to the Israelites. Uh, uh, in the Mesha steel, the Moabite stone, also known as located in the modern-day Jordan, there are 9th century inscriptions that describe King Mesha of Moab capturing Israelite cities and putting them under carom. Total destruction in order to honor the Moabite uh, god Chemish. The point being, the principle of Karim was widely understood in the ancient uh, Near East by many people groups so that this order by God through Joshua to the Israelites would have been very clearly understood which is important to understand because that means this action by Akan, who violated the Karim principle, this was no mere misunderstanding on his part. He knew exactly what he was doing. He understood well the gravity of his decision that day when he took some of the devoted things, the Karim, for himself, which is what makes this sin so egregious, so horrible. Because instead of eliminating everything from his life that could separate himself from God, he actually cherished those things as his own. You understand, God applying carom to this city had nothing to do with God wanting to deprive his people of nice things or of blessings. On the contrary, it had everything to do with God wanting to protect them from anything that could turn their focus or affection away from him. In other words, anything that demands your highest devotion from God, apart from God, I mean, anything that would demand your highest devotion apart from God must be completely eliminated from your life. And it's, it's not removing certain things from our lives so that we can be good people. That's that's dead religion. No, we remove certain things from our lives because they steal our affections. They demand our focus and they turn our gaze away from Jesus Christ. And so God says, eliminate those things from your lives because I want to be as close to you as possible, which means loving me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But the only way you can ever do that is by being radically devoted to me. Okay, God's desire is that nothing come between him and his people because of how much he loves us. 
But he also gave us the free will so that we're, not, uh, we're only ever as devoted to him as we want to be. You, you understand? You're as close to God right now in your life as you want to be. Okay? Being radically devoted to Christ is a daily decision. It's not about saying a prayer one time in your life at church and then there's nothing else left to do. No, radical devotion to Christ is about making decisions every single day that affect your relationship with him. So it's not about how good or bad you want to be. No, it's about how close to him you want to be. That's why we eliminate certain things from our lives. The Apostle Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians 10.23 You understand, our salvation by God is fixed. You're either saved or you aren't. You can't be halfway saved. You can't have part of you saved. You're either saved or you aren't. Our salvation by God is fixed. Our proximity to God is fluid. You cannot be more saved or less saved. You're either born again or you're not, but your closeness to God is not fixed. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. In other words, hey guys, since we've been saved by Jesus Christ, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Obviously, drawing close to God is a choice that we make. David wrote, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63.1. This is the very picture of a man who radically devoted his life to God by pursuing closeness to God. King David also said, I follow hard after thee. That was a daily choice for him, just as it is for you and me, just as it was for Akan. People think Akan's sin was that he violated the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Actually, Akan's greatest sin was that he violated the first commandment. He failed to put God before everything else in his life. He chose to set his affections on other things. Just to put it in perspective today, we know from verse 21 that Akan took five pounds of silver and a pound and a quarter of gold along with an expensive cloak. Just the gold and silver alone represent what an average worker at the time would have earned in a lifetime. Surely we can understand what the guy was thinking, right? I know God wants all my devotion, but if I just make this one simple compromise, my family will be taken care of for life. Surely God would be okay with that. And so in that moment, Akan loved what he could take from this world more than he loved God. He broke the first and greatest commandment. And yet when we do that, when we set our affections on earthly things, we're assuming we can gain enough from this world to be satisfied by it. We're assuming that what this world offers us apart from God is adequate for this life. Listen to me. It's never going to be adequate. It will never be enough. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian, said it this way. He said, the sense of human adequacy is the primary barrier to genuine faith. Whether expressed as confidence in science, moral progress, or military might, the human feeling of self-reliance distances a person from his or her creator. How does that fit into our American way of thinking? 
You see, there's, there's nothing inherently within us or in this world that will ever be adequate to meet our needs or satisfy our deepest longings because only Jesus Christ can do that. Origen, the second century Greek scholar and theologian, said that the devoted things in Joshua 6.18, the things that Akan took, represent the affairs of this present world. And then he points us to Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world. You understand, there's nothing, there's nothing, there is nothing in this world that will ever be adequate for us apart from Christ. Even an entire lifetime of accumulation and achievement cannot satisfy like one moment in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we're left to choose every single day. Will I devote myself today to Christ or will I devote myself to other things? Will I look for my deepest satisfaction in him or in the pursuits of this world? Will I eliminate with extreme prejudice everything in my life that stands between me and a closer relationship with Christ? Or will I allow a portion of it to remain? Because radical devotion is not a prayer in an altar at a church. It's a decision that we make every single day. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 9. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. You'll remember they had, just from the Transjordanian tribes, the Israelites had 40,000 armed warriors with them. So this is a very small percentage of the fighting men. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Israelites have just conquered Jericho. But there's a long way to go before all of Canaan is possessed by God's people. And having the great military mind that Joshua has, he knows that he needs a more strategic position than the Jordan Valley to launch his military offenses throughout Canaan. And so he sets his sights on the city of Ai, known today as Etel in the West Bank or the Hill Country, as that location would provide a much more secure base for the Israelites to operate from because it couldn't be reached by Egyptian or Canaanite chariots because it was rug, uh, like ruggish mountainous, rugged mountainous terrain. And so there were two routes from Jericho that ran west parallel to one another into the hill country with the northern route passing through Etel or Ai, which is why, by the way, Joshua says to his men in verse 2, go up and spy out the land. In other words, take the northern route to Ai and figure out how many men we need to send there to conquer that city. Keep in mind at this point, Joshua has no idea that Akan has taken some of the carom, the devoted things, and kept them for himself. 
He has no idea that God's anger is burning against them. And so as far as Joshua is aware, they're good to go in terms of continuing their military conquest of Canaan. But it also tells us something about Joshua's disposition toward God at this point. Because up to this point, he's been consulting with God on a daily basis before he makes a move. And yet here, concerning the coming invasion of I, Joshua makes decisions and takes actions without the guidance of God. Obviously, because if he had met with God first, he would have known that God was angry with them. And he never would have attempted to take the city without God's blessing. It goes back to the need for us to devote ourselves to God every single day. You understand, we, we cannot expect a commitment that we made to God yesterday to carry us through today. You cannot expect a prayer at an altar 40 years ago to carry you through today. I'm not talking about salvation. Our salvation in God is fixed. There's no sin you can commit that can undo what Jesus did for you on the cross. I'm talking about the guidance and wisdom and blessing that you need from God and receive from God every single day as you devote yourself to him anew every single day. But Joshua, probably basking in their overwhelming victory at Jericho, skips this most important step and attacks the city of Ai based on the recommendation of his spies rather than the recommendation of his God, and the results are disastrous. They not only fail to take the city, but about three dozen Israelites are killed, and the entire military force has to retreat, bolstering the confidence of their enemies, because for them, Israel is no longer invincible. And understandably, Joshua is devastated. And after everything they've been through, it seemed like nothing they could stop them. And indeed, nothing could, save one thing, themselves. And so Joshua and his elders do the only thing they know to do. They fall down and begin to mourn and cry out to God in complete bewilderment at this decisive loss to a much smaller and much weaker city than Jericho, which is also a lesson for us, by the way, when we do not know why certain things are happening in our lives and we don't know what to do in certain circumstances that we face. The answer is always, always turn to God and devote yourself to him, even when you don't see him moving, you don't know if he's working or not, you don't understand what he's doing. If you do see what he's doing, turn to God and devote yourself to him. Author uh, Dale Ralph Davis says it like this, there are times when the people of God today stand in solidarity with Joshua's Israel. That is, there are periods in which confusion strikes and we haven't any idea what God is about. We have no recourse but Joshua's anguished prayer to a mystifying God, pleading both our danger and his honor. That's exactly what Joshua does. And so God responds, as we'll see. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 15. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord God of Israel says, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. 
You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come by near house, uh, nearby households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he's transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he's done an outrageous thing in Israel." So God drops a bomb on Joshua that someone among them has taken some of the devoted things in direct rebellion to the word of God. And he gives Joshua very specific instructions in order to determine who the offending person is. For Joshua to determine, not God. Right? Because obviously God could have just told Joshua who it was. But again, this is a test of Joshua's devotion to God. It's also to slow him down so that he takes the time after the failed attack on I, the time that he should have taken before the attack to follow God's leading. God knows who the offending party is. This is for Joshua and the people's benefit to learn. It's how God works. It's of the utmost importance, by the way, to point out here the way that God describes the guilty party in this passage. Verses 11 and 12, God says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. See, in addition to the devastating loss at I, it is the entire nation of Israel, of all of God's people who are affected by the sin of one member of the family. So God says, get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you, okay? Being radically devoted to Christ affects everyone around you, right? The the church is only as strong in Christ as it is devoted to Christ, and yet the devotion of each one of us affects everyone else. Think about it. As a parent, if your child decides to begin living contrary to the way you've raised them to live, if they begin to rebel against you and your rules and your authority, it affects the entire family, doesn't it? You bet it does. I've seen some of your posts this week. One child misbehaving, whether an adult child or small, can affect the entire family in profound ways. If a parent goes off the deep end and stops being a leader and a role model and a mentor to their spouse or their children, what happens? The entire family is deeply affected. You understand it's the same with the church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are affected by the degree to which your life is devoted to Christ, which is precisely why there's so much written in Scripture about how we, those within the church, are supposed to hold one another accountable. Listen, we're not to hold the world accountable. We're just supposed to love them the way Christ loved them. Of course, we're supposed to love the church, each other, just as Christ loved the church, which includes the way he held those early followers, the early church, accountable. You think about who Jesus was hard on in Scripture. The church, 
He held them accountable for their behavior, for their actions, for their heart. The people in the world, no matter how guilty or full of sin they were, all he did was give them dignity and love and invited them in to, to be a part of the family. But once you became a part of the family, you're held to a different standard, right? It affects what we do, affects everyone else in the body. We'll talk about what that looks like in practical terms in a few moments, but the, the point is for now, we have to stop pretending in this comfortable modern church culture that we're all living in today. We have to stop pretending that how I live my life spiritually is a private matter. It's a personal choice that's really no one else's business as long as it isn't hurting anyone else. Because the fact is, it is hurting everyone else when you live your life less than fully devoted to Christ. Yet I can't tell you, as a pastor, how many people over the years who were professing Christians when I've asked them about their spiritual life have, res have responded with something along the lines of, well, pastor, that's really a personal matter for me. Well, guess what? Your spiritual life is a personal matter for me, too, because whether you like it or not, we're both members of the same body, according to Scripture, which means if one member is not functioning as they were intended to, if they're not pulling their weight spiritually, it affects all of us, the entire body. The Apostle Paul said, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together, every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, he's talking about you and me, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The only way we grow, the only way we're built up in love, the only way we work properly is when each one of us is devoted to Christ, willing to speak the truth in love to one another, even when it hurts. It's so profoundly important, should be so profoundly important to each one of us that when among, uh, one among us is living in direct disobedience to the word of God, that we love each other so deeply that we're willing to go to that person after making sure there isn't a plank in our own eye and then say, hey, if I didn't care about you or this family that we both belong to, I wouldn't even bring this up. But the fact is I do care and I do love you. So I'm going to be honest with you. You're messing up. You're being unfaithful to God and to us and to yourself, which I totally understand, by the way, because I've done it myself many times. So how about you let me walk this road with you till you're back where you need to be and you're back where we need you to be. Right? Because being radically devoted to Christ affects everyone around you and we'll only be as strong as each one of us is devoted. Let's keep reading verses 16 through 21. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Akon the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Akon, My son, give glory to the Lord of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Akan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua follows God's instructions uh, and Akan is revealed as the one who took 
the devoted things. And interestingly, in verse 21, when Akan says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. If you compare that verse with Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3, 6, where it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. If you read those two passages side by side in the ancient Hebrew, the same words are described the moment when Akan and when Eve both saw something beautiful and desired to have it. Why? Because it was the same sin. It was devoting themselves to something in that moment of temptation more than they were devoted to God. They, they both broke that first and greatest commandment. And in both cases, I think it's safe to say that everyone else around them was affected by their decision to devote themselves to something other than him. How easy it could have been for Eve to say, well, no one's around. I'm not hurting anyone else. What you do, positively or negatively toward Christ, affects everyone else in the body. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 22 to the end of the chapter. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. Joshua and all Israel with him took Akan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over them a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Echor. Of course, this, this is the part of the story that we don't like to read. We don't like to talk about. You're not going to hear a lot of sermons on this passage of Scripture because it doesn't end the way we would like for it to, right? We'd much rather see a con repent and be restored to God and the people and talk about the love and forgiveness of Christ and the mercy of God. But we first have to recognize... First of all, of course, this was before Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. So by taking the things devoted for destruction into his heart and into his own home, Akan and all that he has have come into union with the devoted things. In other words, Akan and his family and belongings have themselves become Karim. They've become Karim, the very things that were devoted for destruction. It's worth noting here that, that uh, there's strong evidence that Akan's family was actually colluding with them in covering up the devoted things based on the living arrangements and customs they had at the time. And although we don't have time to, to work through all that today, in the end, uh, that may well be true. As God says to Joshua back in verse 12, I will be with you no more until you destroy the devoted things from among you. And then he they're commanded to destroy Akan and his family and everything they own. Which means Joshua, he would have only destroyed Akan if he was the only devoted thing, the only guilty party. But look, even still, according to our 21st century Western sensibilities, small comfort. I mean, it makes us uncomfortable, as it should, as it was meant to, because of the gravity of what sin does to humanity. 
It also underscores the radical devotion that God commands from his people, okay? Being radically devoted to Christ means living without compromise. When it comes to living for Christ, there's no room for compromise. There's no room for half-heartedness. There's no room for middle ground where we continually live our lives somewhere between devotion to Christ and devotion to ourselves. Yet that's exactly where many Christians live today. They focus a little on Christ and a lot on themselves. I would say that's probably most of the professing church in the West. We focus a little on Christ and a lot on ourselves and that kind of compromise. When you compromise your devotion, all that does is brings division in your own life and in the lives of those around you. Uh, listen, I counsel with people constantly. It never stops. Division in a family always boils down to one or more of the members of that family who are focused on themselves more than they are in Christ and on the other people. Division in relationships in general comes down to someone in that relationship focusing on themselves rather than focusing on Christ or that other person. And division in the church is no different. It always comes down to people who are more focused on themselves than they're committed to, devoted to themselves and their own agenda more than they are devoted to Christ and to the body. Always. And I'm telling you when, you, when you compromise your devotion to Christ, when you focus on yourself in life, in the end, you always lose more than you gain. Just ask a con, right? We focus on ourselves because we want something more for ourselves, but the actual effect is always the opposite. In the end, we lose more than we gain when our lives are devoted to ourselves because we're breaking the first and greatest commandment, and there's no greater sin than that. Look, the, the severity of the judgment on Akan and his family is what indicates the severity of his sin. But the truth is we struggle to understand these kinds of passages in part because sin doesn't bother us like it should. That's why we're so baffled by these stories in the Bible where tens of thousands of people are wholesale put to death. We see it in Exodus 32 and Numbers 25. That's why we can't understand Jesus when he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Obviously, that's hyperbole, but it's also still a very shocking and extreme thing to say, isn't it? That's why churches today don't actually practice Paul's teaching when he said, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Jesus said, treat him as a pagan and a tax collector. It's excommunication. John says, don't even greet them at your door. The truth is, we not only entertain people who come in to divide the church, we just, we just let them stay. Look, if we're confused by these kinds of passages, it's because we're not confounded by sin. If these passages confound you, it's because you're not confounded by sin. Not the way Jesus was or the way the apostles were. You see, when we become comfortable with compromise, it's hard to understand the consequences. We're just used to it. We've become comfortable with it. But being radically devoted to Christ means living without compromise. I'm not talking about being perfect. None of us, including your pastor, hit that mark. I'm talking about being devoted to Christ 
above everything else in our lives. It's a posture we take, and we're going to mess it up along the way because we're all imperfect human beings. But the posture of our hearts and of our daily lives is one of radical devotion to Christ, mistakes and all. And it's, it's not hard, by the way, if you're wondering to tell uh, what you're devoted to. You just look at how you spend your time. Look at how you spend your money. Look at what you're focused on throughout your life each day. Those are indicators of where your devotion lies. And look, if you, if you really want your life to be full, to be truly satisfied, full of purpose and contentment, fulfillment, then radically devote yourself to Christ. And I'm telling you, he will add more to your life than you could ever hope to by focusing on yourself. That's a fact. That's why Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and great commandment. He didn't say, love the Lord your God with some of your heart, with some of your soul, with some of your mind. No, he said, I want it all. I want all of your devotion, which is a radical way to live your life, to be sure. It's also the reason few people choose to live that way. But it's what radical devotion looks like. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it goes against everything that our flesh is longing for. But it's the only way to live the kind of life that you're truly capable of living. It's the only way to receive everything from God that he wants to give you. And it's the only way to truly please him by obeying that first and great commandment. And that's a decision you're going to have to make every single day. The choice to follow him above everything and everyone else. When, when you make that choice, when you choose every single thing that comes along with it and you reject every single thing that doesn't in your life, that's what radical devotion looks like. It's what our lives are supposed to look like. In fact, that's what you want your life to look like even if you don't realize it because I understand devoting yourself to something other than yourself seems counterintuitive to getting the most out of this life. But it turns out that's exactly how you get the most out of this life by radically devoting all of it to Christ alone. Let's pray.